Hello and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson and I'm the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, it's it's chilly here, but I say that knowing that it is much chillier in many, many parts of the country. <laughs> How have you been holding up? Has the weather hit you guys out there? Uh, it's snowing as we speak, actually, um, and it's beautiful, but um, yeah, it's a little annoying. Um, it hasn't been too bad in New Jersey. We, we haven't... Uh, had the worst of it, like other people. I, 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 like many people, watched the Kansas City-Miami game last night. Ooh, that looked interesting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we've been lucky so far. But I know it's going to be, a, 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 I think, a bad week to come. Oh, yeah. So stay, stay safe out there, those of you who are braving that weather. And um, I'll continue to complain from my 65... <laughs> 50, 55, 60 degrees in in Arizona here. I think we, I think we have a, a 75 as the high one of the days this week. So maybe I'll keep to myself. Um, but I digress. Um, as as the let, let me see if I can nail this transition here. As the um, the the weather outside is cooling off, so is the free agent market. There we go. Bingo. Um, yeah, things have been a little yeah. bit quieter since. Uh, since our last recording here, um, we I think people expected things to pick up a little bit coming out of the holidays, and to this point, they haven't. There's been a little bit here and there, some really interesting trades that we'll get into in this episode, um, a few signings, um, and maybe some theories as to why the rest of the market's been held up to this point. But before we get into that, just wanted to briefly mention that uh, baseball trade value is looking for writers, looking for article writers on a on an ad hoc uh, freelance basis. Um, we have already received a handful of submissions and and some strong submissions there. But if you are interested, feel free to throw your name in the hat, hat in the ring, whatever you want to call it, and and uh, I'll go ahead and include a link to our um, our article about <laughs> wanting article writers. I'll include that in the show notes. Um, but the the main gist of it is it's you're going to be writing about uh, trade value, roster construction, team building strategies, just everything that we already do write about and already do talk about and, and work with on the site. And if you're interested, send an email to baseballtradevalues at gmail.com and include any writing samples, experience, et, et cetera. And uh, yeah, we'll take a look and let you know what we think. Um, anything you want to add to that, John? No, I think we're off to a good, a good start. We have a few a few people who have expressed interest. And so... Um... But yeah, we're we're still keeping the door open, and um, just to your point, um, we're gonna keep the subject matter. I mean, obviously, you want to know about baseball and roster construction, and you know, the concept of surplus value is sort of inherent to what we do. So we want to keep the topics more or less along those lines, right? So as opposed to a wider breadth of sports writing topics. So um, just so you know how we're oriented, and um, so if you have that inclination, yeah, feel free, reach out to us. Yep, looking forward to hearing from all of you. All right, let's get into the news. Let's start on the front office side. So the Cardinals have hired Heim Bloom in an advisory role, part-time, kind of, this is a reminiscent of either the role that David Stern stepped back into last year, although very different situation there, probably more comparable to James Click um, coming out of Houston and uh Hopping on with the Blue Jays, I believe that was entering last season, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, my timelines are all out of whack, <laughs> um, but but similar similar there where uh, Click was let go by the Astros, Bloom let go by the Red Sox, and 
they seemingly had their their choice of some of the open jobs and elected not to jump on any of them. Uh, earlier in the offseason, we heard a report that Bloom was the top candidate for the Marlins and was not interested in that job. And, and I believe there were a few other jobs he came up in as a potential candidate and may have turned down. Um, so it seems like he is kind of taking, you know, <laughs> I guess you could call it a gap year or taking a bit of a step back for a year. Um, but there's there are much worse places you could do that than St. Louis, um, especially considering, uh, John, I don't know if you've noticed, I, I follow a couple Cardinals fans on Twitter. They're not the happiest these days. No. Um, there's started... some, yeah, yeah, there's some discourse in St. Louis, which is not very usual for them. They're usually a fairly stable franchise and a fairly successful franchise year after year. And 2023 kind of diverted from that. And now you're starting to hear rumblings of, okay, is, is Mazeliak on the way out? Or, oh, they just brought in Yadier Molina as like an advisory role, and he's going to be very involved with the team. Are they getting him ready to supplant Ali Marmol as the manager of the team? There's, there's a lot of rumblings there. And, you know, on the one hand, it's just adding to the brain trust, bringing in a guy like Heim Bloom, who's very, very well respected, even if his time in Boston didn't go 100% according to plan. But on the other hand, you wonder if he's kind of breathing down Moseliak's neck a little bit. So a couple of points. One is this is a very common pattern when, you know, the head of baseball operations loses a job. Keep in mind, they typically are getting paid by their existing work at their previous organization because they probably had a contract that's still going. So it's not like they need a job, which I think. So they take advantage of that to kind of take a breath, spend time with family, of course, and then and then ease into something else. So I think that's what Bloom is doing. We've seen that also. I think another name that came to mind is Dayton Moore, who I believe is in a similar role with the Braves, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, so it's a common pattern, number one. Number two, I did see something this morning that um, Zeliak said um, he doesn't expect to continue in that role when his contract expires after 2025, I believe it is. Uh, like he has two years left, basically, um, which I think I think is newsworthy. Now, I'm not suggesting that Bloom is you know, the successor in waiting, but I do think they also, Mazaliak also said something about the other day about um, kind of looking at themselves in the mirror and detecting that they had a sense of arrogance is the word he used, which means that they may have had some blind spots. And so bringing in a fresh pair of eyes can kind of point those out and say, hey, folks, let's get real. Let's change the way we do things. So um, I think there's some of that going on as well. Yeah. And when you kind of look at the Cardinals and some of their comments over the last handful of months as well as some of their actions the last handful of months i think you can sense the frustration from the fan base from the organization as a whole there were a lot of really telling comments toward the end of last season i believe it was moseliak said something along the lines of like we need to reevaluate how we're doing this how we're looking at pitching specifically we can't just this isn't uh you know, 2005 anymore. We can't be relying on these ground ball, hope it finds a glove types for every member of our rotation. We need some swing and miss. And I think that was, everyone was pretty on board with that uh, from their fan base, from the organization. It seemed like there was some buy-in there. And I don't know if I would say they've actually committed to that <laughs> this off season. You know, they brought in three veteran starters at the beginning of the off season. They brought in Lance Lynn. Okay, he'll miss a bat every now and then, but who knows how how high his ERA will go, how many home runs he'll give up yeah. this season. Kyle Gibson, not exactly known for missing bats. And Sonny Gray, who, yeah, he'll strike a guy out, but he's uh, that's certainly not something he's known for. Those 
none of those three names are the ones where you'd look at this offseason's free agent class and say, yep, those are the strikeout guys that they were talking about. So you wonder if there's another move to be made there. There's also some rumblings of them kind of crying poor a little bit. And uh, we'll maybe get into that in a moment here with some of the mm-hmm. TV network um, related items. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, you do make a good point that, um, you know, they have the Cardinals way. They develop hitters and position players and defensive-minded position players quite well. Obviously, Tommy Edmonds of the world. But the um, the pitching, when you really look at it, has not been a, st- a strength of theirs developmentally. And they keep just sort of signing these old wily veterans and trading for the – they traded for John Lester and – you know, these other guys in the past couple of years that are just old Wiley veterans, they kept Wainwright on long past when he probably should have retired. So there's like, there's a sense that they've had with the, with the starting pitching in particular, where they just sort of like these guys who were graying at the temples and not necessarily strike up, like holding the fourth down kind of guys. I think they need to get away from that. And I think they need to start developing, developing their own. And I don't see a whole lot coming from them in the farm either. So that's one area where I think they got to look. Yeah, there's there's a few names there. You know, there's a, a Matthew Liberator that used to have some prospect hype, but you're right. Yeah. There's no there's no blue chipper that's knocking on the door and about to bust into the rotation. And you can kind of look at a lot of their they've had some hyped pitching prospects the last handful of years, and a lot of them seem to find success in other organizations, find more success elsewhere. You look at you know, Michael Waka yeah. or Lance Lynn the first time around, he was solid for them, but took another massive step forward after leaving St. Louis. Yeah, Sandy Alcantara, they traded yep, away. Yep, I believe Zach Gallen was in their system well. at one mm-hmm. point. Yeah, yep. and and then there's there's some guys that flamed out as well, that Carlos Martinez's and Alex mm-hmm. Reyes's of the world. But mm-hmm. it it's right, you're right. Like, outside of Adam Wainwright, and like, I guess you could squint and give him partial credit for Jack Flaherty. But otherwise, there's just yeah. not a lot of homegrown talent in that rotation, and there hasn't been in the last handful of years. And that's really, as as we've kind of seen with the Mets the last few years, when your problem is that you're not developing, you can't just necessarily throw money at that and fix it in that way. And that, that was kind of the rude awakening that the Mets got was, if they really want to be Dodgers East, then they need to start from the the ground up they can't just jump into the deep end of the free agent pool and solve the other problems as they go like you need to build a strong foundation of development and roster churn and and next man up mentality and then supplement that with the top tier free agents or the extension candidates or whatever and this is obviously you know kind of apples and oranges here but it's a similar case here with the cardinals i feel like where you know, you could just throw some money at Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson and Sonny Gray and, and say, look, we have a rotation now. Or you make some of the harder decisions. You, you know, maybe you trade for a guy with more control, a Dylan Cease, or pay up an extra penny for Jesus Lazardo, someone along those lines who, A, does really have that swing in this stuff you're looking for, and B, you know, maybe that's a guy who can like lead a rotation and actually teach some of these younger pitchers in a way that no knock on Sonny Gray. I love the guy. He's one of my favorite pitchers of the last decade or so. But if you're trying to kind of change the organization culturally, Sonny Gray and Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn feel a lot more like the type of pitcher the Cardinals have had 
Yeah. And and that's what you were saying just yeah. now as well. Whereas if you really want to shake things up and improve things, get one of those like true swing and miss guys. Doesn't even have to be a true number one guy because I don't think anybody's looking at C's or even Luzardo as like that's our ace, that's our number one. But it's at least a different look, a different feel, a different mentality. And I, I that's what they said they wanted to introduce to their pitching staff, to their organization, and they really haven't done it yet. Yeah, agreed. I mean, look, they drafted Michael McGreevy a couple of years ago as their first-round draft choice, and he has languished, and his stock has dropped. Liberatory's stock has dropped. You know, they're not – something has something's not working there in the pitching department. That's got to be priority number one. Right, and and not to be overly critical here, because there's obviously a lot of things that the Cardinals do well, but the pitching is really holding them back in a lot of ways. You know, you, you mentioned that they can churn out the Tommy Edmonds and Brendan Donovans of the world like nobody else. Like, that is, at this point, it's not luck anymore. That is a skill that that organization has of finding those types of hitters who can succeed at the big league level without that, like, prospect hype and and su- supplementing them with a Nolan Arenado or a Paul Goldschmidt or, you know, a breakout prospect, Jordan Walker. And so they, they clearly have those skills as an organization on the offensive side. And a lot of the time, those skills plus, you know, average-ish pitching has been enough for them in the NL Central. And then in 2023, it wasn't. And so you have to figure out, okay, are we just going to roll the dice again with what used to work for us? Or do we want to take steps forward? Do we want to not just be the best team in a mediocre NL Central, do we want to be a legitimate powerhouse, a a legitimate World Series threat for, for a stretch of multiple years? Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was a... I didn't know <laughs> I had that many... Cardinals. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know I had that many Cardinals feelings in me and, uh-huh. and Heim Bloom brought them to the, to the surface, but... Uh, there you go. Well, that's why he's there, right? Exactly. He's going to help solve the problem. He, yeah. he, he made some improvements in the, uh, in the farm system with the Red Sox. So maybe, maybe there's some, some, and, and to be clear at this stage, at least it's, it's a part-time role. Um, I'm reading through this article a bit more and it looks like Bloom's going to be remote for the most part. So that's a little bit indicative as well. Not to, uh, not to shame anyone for working remotely as, <laughs> as I do most days of the week. Um, but at least within within baseball, I think it that shows um, a level of distance from the job. And so, you know, he's probably going to be a valued voice in that front office. But maybe earlier when I said breathing down was Eliak's neck, maybe that's uh, that was a little bit too aggressive there. OK. All right. Uh, sticking in the front office, uh, let's head down to Atlanta, where the Braves extended Alex Anthopoulos through 2031. Um in true Braves fashion, they broke the news themselves, announced it on Twitter. Um, all of the jokes about the Bra- uh, the Braves Foundation that, that you would expect, they, they went through the pipeline. <laughs> um, but really, really, it's a reflection of the type of job that Anthopolis has done on this roster. And, you know, he has kind of built this culture of if you're our guy and you perform for us and you show that you're going to continue to perform for us and be a good fit for us, we're going to hand you the contract. We're going to keep you in town. We're going to extend you and it's going to be, you know, 
around market rate in some cases, a little bit under in some cases, a lot under if you're Ozzy Albies, but for the most part, you're going to get paid and you're going to be happy to be here. And that's kind of the culture that the Braves have had the last handful of years. And it's it's nice to see that reflected in the front office as well with ownership handing out this extension for Anthopolis. I mean, he has really done a lot of the legwork here. Um, when he joined on, it was guys like Sean Newcomb and know the recently departed Kyle Wright um, guys like that who are supposed to be the foundation of the next great Braves team and everybody in that ilk you know even even the Mike Fulton and Ian Anderson's like those guys flamed out didn't work out but he still built a true juggernaut in Atlanta and so why would you even risk letting a guy like that go and, you know, a lot can happen between now and 2031. That is seven years from now. I can't even imagine the, the year 2031. That's hard to fathom. But it's, it's hard to fault this at all. You know, who else would you want running the show there for the next, well, for the remainder of this decade when, uh, when all of the, the players, all the stars are under team control for that span as well? I think he set a new standard. And what he's doing basically is, either developing talent or finding the right talent and then extending them through their prime years at a discount, which is like the gold. Like if you're the ownership of the Braves, you would love that. And I know they're a public company, so you can actually be a part owner. You just buy stock in them, which is amazing. But if you look at one of the things um, that's one of the fun things I'm just going to um, tout about our new site is you can go into our team section if you're a GM level member and uh, look at the team rankings and it will slice and dice the data in a number of ways. So, for example, who ha which team has the most field value under contract? Number one, the Braves. Which team has the most uh, surplus value at the major league level? You guessed it, the Braves, and it's not even close. They have $932 million in surplus value. And the next closest one is the Mariners at 731 So, in other words, they're $200 million above number two. So, there's a huge gap between number one and number two, and that shows you at, you know what what Anthopoulos is doing. He's he's finding field value. He's finding talent, and he's he's locking it up at a discount. Total surplus value again. Braves number one, one thousand twelve. That that's basically over a billion dollars in surplus value total between the majors and minors. Um, obviously, the weak point is the farm system. Uh, he's basically invested you know all of the value in the major league system, which of course is what you want to do. That's the ultimate goal, right? So from a farm system perspective, they're 29th out of 30. But it doesn't matter because he's got all the spots filled. He even filled left field this year with Kellenek, who's got multiple years of control. So like everything is filled at the major league level. And, you know, he's got a pitching staff. He's traded for sale. He's got a – man, it's hard to see. Like if you – like this is the template, right? It's hard to see a better job because he's got a winning team, a really powerful field value team, and – really powerful sort of bang for the buck in terms of surplus value. You can't get any better than that. So it's no wonder that the Braves themselves as an organization said, yes, that's the, that's the gold standard and are locking him up. Right. And I, I think you can point to the rotation and have some questions uh, going into, going into this season, maybe, but especially going into next season, uh, Max Freed is set to hit free agency. Charlie Morton will be a free agent, and he is not getting any younger. At, at some point, he's going to run out of gas here. And as you mentioned, they traded for Chris Sale. They also did um, extend him. Um, so let's just touch on that really quick. Um, it's it's kind of an extension. It's more so 
a reallocation of money and guaranteeing what was a club option for 2025. The previous structure was 17 and a half, um, no, 27 and a half million in 2024, with 10 million of that being deferred, and a $20 million club option for 2025. And uh, with that 27 and a half million in 2024 and 10 million of it being deferred, the Red Sox also sent over $17 million to cover basically the remainder there. So, you know, functionally from a cash standpoint, it was going to be 500K that Atlanta is paying in 2024. And then their, their 2025 club option for $20 million. And then 15 years down the road, they'd owe him $10 million for the deferrals. They're basically reallocating that money um, and making it a little bit more favorable for themselves for luxury tax purposes. And on, on sales side of it, he gets that 2025 option basically locked in, and then there's an additional 2026 club option. So the new deal ends up being 16 million in 2024, 22 million in 2025 guaranteed, and an $18 million club option for 2026. So really just a, a rework to make, make it a little bit more feasible for the luxury tax and also lock in the guy for, yeah. for 2025. He um, squeezed out an extra year. Right, right. And so... You know, not not a whole lot to get out of that other than, you know, financial nitty gritty if we, we really wanted to get into it. But all that to say, I think you can look at that 2025 rotation that's going to feature Chris Sale, that's not going to feature by all likelihood Max Freed and Charlie Morton. And, you know, they, they signed Ronaldo Lopez to a multi-year deal and they said they'd use him as a starter, but I don't think anybody really knows what that's going to look like yet. And so I think it's fair to have some questions about the rotation in future years. But the thing is, you know, all they need really is, you know, one pop-up prospect or one first round pick that produces a little bit more value because most of their first rounders are going to be, you know, 27th, 28th, 29th overall because they're finishing with one of the best records in baseball every year. So they're not going to have any of those real blue chip top of the first round type guys. But all it takes is one of those early draft picks popping up a little bit or some other prospect and then suddenly oh hey we have trade capital and like you were saying john they don't have any positions to fill at least at first glance on the offense so we can just funnel that into rotation upgrades and they have that that freedom now that they have all of these star level talents locked up and under team control for the next handful of years on the offensive side that they have the choice now they can go make a splash in free agency for a starter if they want or they can just reallocate whatever tools they have left on the farm and upgrade the rotation that way yeah i mean yeah those are all good points um so they gotta look i mean i think they're okay rotation wise this year i think they look at after freed departs which looks like it's gonna happen you know they've got a hold of her there and maybe another one or five so uh, but they've got, you know, a couple of guys coming. AJ Smith's jobber looks promising. Um, we'll see what else they develop from the farm. Um, but, you know, they they are playing with house money to a certain degree because they have so much already done. And and then the other thing is they, they will look to rebuild the farm, to your point. They're not going to get too much capital in the way of draft picks, so they have to be kind of creative. And I think the Dodgers are really good at that. Maybe they follow that lead a little bit by finding kind of, you know, the Dalton Rushings is a second rounder because he was back. He was playing behind Henry Davis. He didn't get as much opportunities, but he's really talented. And so they kind of see those those nuggets a little bit in the you know in, in when you're when you're mining for gold. So um, I think they can do a, a little bit more of that. Um, but yeah, it's hard to find a better one organization overall. 
And the other thing is this offseason, Anthopolis showed a willingness to really slice and dice and put on his Jerry DePoto hat and play a little red paperclip game. Love try it. and ink out, <laughs> eke out whatever value he can from the bad contracts that he took on in the Kelnick deal. Yep. And, you know, am I thoroughly impressed with anything that he got out of all of that? Not necessarily. I, I think the Kelnick deal at the beginning was a good one and, you know, offloaded a little bit of Marco Gonzalez's contract, good for him, offloaded Tyler, or not Tyler White, excuse me, Evan White, who, as I've mentioned before, is, is kind of a zero from a big league expectations standpoint. And whereas David Fletcher might actually play some sort of a role with the big league club in 2024 for the Braves. So, you know, that's theoretically a potential value add there. So, you know, nothing, nothing crazy from any of those moves, but it shows a willingness to make moves when you need to. And that whole that whole progression of trades felt very Dodgers. I know I knew I said Depoto hat, but that felt very Dodgers. Like let's just get this little eke of value, and we'll throw in the few million to cover this portion of the contract. And we just want to improve this spot on our roster by five percent because why not? Why would we sit and stand pat with what might be fully dead money when I could acquire money that might have a tiny, teensy little bit of upside? You know, so I I commend that, and I think that's pretty indicative of the mentality of let's just improve however we can. And we're not going to, you know, we're not necessarily going to conform to just traditional baseball operations. We're just going to try and improve every spot on this roster. And when we get a guy we like, we're not going to play any games with him. We're going to lock him up and, and that's going to be that. Yeah. You can zag when everybody else is zigging. So everybody wants to get rid of bad contracts, right? So the Mariners wanted to offload Marco Gonzalez and Evan Wade's contracts. And so he said, okay, fine. Give me Kellenic. And, you know, and start the ball rolling from there. Um, there's a way to do that. And if you can take advantage of that, other other teams that, especially in the light of some of the re- revenue issues we're seeing, um, by all means, you have leverage to do that. So I think I think he was playing that game, and good for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, just while we're wrapping up the, the subject of the Braves here, I'll go ahead and mention that they signed Luis Guillorme to a major league deal. One year, $1.1 million. Um, we... Uh, Mentioned, I believe, on a previous episode that the Braves are are so stacked, but they kind of don't have a bench. Uh, Guillaume is going to help solve that problem, and I guarantee you he's going to have some big playoff hit this year because that's just how they work. He's my, the new Guillermo Heredia. Yes, my favorite thing about Luis Gourmet is, I don't know if you ever saw the clip, but some, there was a, an at-bat where the, the batter threw the bat. It like flew out of his hands and went right into the Mets dugout, and Guillaume just put his hand up, grabbed the bat in midair. Like it was nothing. And he was like, yeah, I got it. <laughs> Everybody's like, what? <laughs> um, that was a great moment. Um, but he also, I think, is duplicative of David Fletcher. They're both backup utility infielder types, right? So it makes you wonder what Fletcher's doing on the roster, speaking of all those uh, deals he made. Um, I don't know if that means there's not a lot of confidence in Fletcher, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Well, I believe Fletcher was outrighted. So yes, he's he actually was. off of the 40-man. and so But he's he can still in the be... organization. You can still tap true. that if you need to. Yeah. True, <laughs> true. So it doesn't doesn't hurt to have a backup, um, especially considering, you know, if you were to really look at that depth chart with with a fine-tooth comb, um, you're going you're gonna to find Orlando Arcia as a bit of a question mark at shortstop, where he had a but strong first half in, yeah. in 2023, tailed off a little bit in the second half, and, and, you know, he's still at the end of the day is Orlando Arcia, so our expectations have improved of him a little bit, but I don't know if we're quite putting him in the same sentence as... Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies and Austin Riley yet. Um, 
So if there were a position on that roster that they would want to build out a little more depth, that's probably the one. Yeah. Not not to necessarily call David Fletcher a shortstop, but... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, that's, that's probably good for the Braves. Um, just want to briefly mention here um, a tweet from Jim Bowden this morning. I'm just going to read directly from the tweet, and I'll have it linked in the show notes. Part of the MLB free agent delay has been the media negotiations for many top teams, now supposedly getting finalized this week, which hopefully opens up the dam. So we've referenced this a handful of times on previous podcast episodes where there are some there are some various RSN issues across the league. Um, some folks are starting to think that the RSN uh, regional sports network bubble is starting to pop. That used to be kind of a primary source of funding for most teams. and we saw last year that Bally Sports declared bankruptcy and the uh, tough situation that left teams like the Padres in um, as they lost that revenue stream and MLB picked it up, but I don't think they were quite paying the full extent that Bally was. And so that left them in a bit of a weird spot um, last season and going into this off season. And then this off season we saw, I believe it's the Guardians, the Rangers and the Twins. Um, who are also now experiencing RSN issues related to Bally. Um, we've also talked about the Mariners' financial issues with Root, uh, with their network, not not affiliated with Bally. And so this has kind of just been hanging over the heads of a lot of teams that you might have expected to be more active this offseason. You know, the Twins haven't done much of anything. Um, the Rangers, they've, they've made a couple minor moves here and there. They'd sign a a Tyler Malley to a two-year deal, but you know you'd expect them to be among the front runners to bring Jordan Montgomery back, and there really hasn't been a whole lot of buzz on that front. Um, you know, usually a World Series winner has a lot more in the tank that next offseason to upgrade the team and try and run it back, and we haven't really seen that from them. And then you know you look at the Guardians; the Guardians always kind of operate in a certain kind of way of cost cutting, but we specifically saw it when they cut bait on Cal Quantrill who, you know, not an not an amazing impact player by any means, but a decent contributor for them who was just do a handful, uh, do like five or six million, I believe, in, in arbitration. And they said, well, this is a tough call for us, but if we don't know what our financial future is going to look like, we can't hang on to this guy. Um, and so they've cut ties with him. And so according to Bowden here, we might be getting some resolution on that in the coming days. I know there's been there's been reports that Amazon was bidding for for the Bally teams, or that MLB might just might just buy them out. Um, I, I I can't um, I can't pretend that I've been as in tune with the you know day to day updates on this situation as I would be for trade negotiations or anything like that. But it is an important factor that has probably contributed to a bit of the slowness we've seen this off season. You know, there's a couple. Real big free agents between Montgomery, between Blake Snell and, and Cody Bellinger, Matt Chapman to mention as well, probably a few names I'm missing there, but some big free agents that haven't moved yet. And you wonder, is the Snell and um, the Snell and Montgomery market, is that potentially holding up a Dylan Cease trade or a Jesus Lazardo trade or the Mariners trading one of their young arms? So just uh, something to keep an eye on. You know, Bowden says uh, he, he's been wrong before, but he says um, 
that if the deal's getting finalized this week, hopefully that opens up the dam in, in free agency, and then we could see a trickle effect um, for trades as well. Yeah, this is important because the owners care about it. The owners look at revenue and obviously budget and things like that. So it all flows down from there, obviously. So if the owners don't have a sense of certainty of how much revenue they're going to make based on this question mark of a TV deal, then they're going to pass it on to their front office and say, I don't know what my budget is. And they're going to be, their hands are going to be tied. And so that ties up the whole thing. So from a fan perspective, you might think, oh, yeah, let's just go out and sign Snell or Montgomery. But this is what's holding it up. The owners can't give the front offices a budget because they don't know what their revenue is going to be. And owners don't like uncertainty. So they can't just say, well, you know, you can spend $50 million because maybe that's not enough. Maybe after this is resolved, they'll have $75 million to spend. I'm not just making up these numbers, obviously, but the the point is you, you can't really move because your your options are dependent on, on what your budget is from a front office perspective. So I do buy that that's a factor in holding this up. You can also argue that it's not the greatest free agent class. You could also argue that from a trade market perspective, you know, there aren't that many options, at least in terms of starting pitching, because you've got a, uh, you know, there's just not that many available. And so you can see why there's kind of a stasis there. And these things are interdependent, because if you don't get your plan A, you sort of shift to plan B. So you're still waiting on plan A and how that's going to be resolved. And the thing that's holding that up is the owners giving you the money to do that. So we'll see how this thing shakes out. Right. And a lot of this comes from this kind of developed perspective among MLB owners that the team that they own must be profitable year in and year out and they run it purely as a business and so they don't want to make any they don't want to take any risks take any chances here while the revenue portion is uncertain they don't want to make any risks and any financial commitments on the cost side when they don't have the revenue the revenue estimations you know a little bit more ironed out so that's that's all we're looking at here really and it, it could go one of two ways if, if things go well then maybe we just see return to business as usual um but if the whatever the kind of conclusion of this um of these media negotiations turns out to be i think it could I don't think this is the end of this is, is I guess what I'm trying to say is I think we're going to see more and more teams crying poor because of RSN issues over the upcoming years. And to some extent, maybe there's some, some validity there of, yeah, this was a large revenue stream. There was a business model built here by MLB where a large portion of team revenues came from, people paying for these big cable packages, whether they like baseball or not, and a portion of that money getting funneled to MLB. And I, I think that's kind of an irreversible change that we're seeing just in media consumption away from cable. And so this is only going to continue to be more and more of an issue down the road until something happens, something changes within the revenue model itself. Um, so th th there's my uh, my doom and gloom for the morning. Yeah, it's it's, you know, I've, I've been following it to a d degree, and look, I think where this ev eventually ends up is MLB uh, figures out a whole streaming model that is kind of centralized and consolidated instead of having all these individual cable TV deals. As we know, there's lots of cord cutting going on. C cable TV sort of 
in a macro level is on the decline and so eventually they have to be it's, i used to work in the music business i saw this happening when napster broke up the whole cd model it, it happens eventually and it all went to streaming there and so it's going to happen here as well it's all going to go to streaming but we don't know what the numbers are going to be we don't know how much revenue that's going to yield and so in a longer term sense there's uh i think there's an ownership concern that okay maybe that's not going to be the gravy train that it was in the past because cable tv kind of was a gravy train and now it's kind of ending so that's the macro sort of thing. In the short term, I think you've also got um, teams that were kind of spending big, like the Rangers and the Padres, who are pulling back for that reason and, and also other reasons, as we know with the Padres and the owner passing away. And so A.J. Preller has been particularly quiet this offseason, which is unusual. So last season overall, we there were times when it felt like a frenzy, like let's give a big contract to Bogarts and let's you know extend that. You know, there was a lot of that going on last offseason. This year, it's been very calm and very rational, and I think that is a big factor for TV money this year. I may be wrong on this. I believe last year was the final year of MLB advanced media payouts by Disney. Um, yeah. And I wonder if that coincides as well. Of I believe it was like every team just got a, here's a $50 million check, essentially, from, from that payout. Um and that could have driven some of that aggression last offseason, especially for a team like the Padres. And then, you know, the Padres are kind of their own case. It's it's night and day what they were looking at last offseason compared to this offseason. And their their moves and decisions reflect that. But I wonder if that help, uh, helped drive some of the aggression last time around. And, and yep. losing that um, this offseason certainly hasn't helped. All right, let's get into some of, actually, no, not the trades yet. Um, let's talk arbitration really quick. So the arbitration deadlines are always quite confusing because um, there's many different deadlines that sometimes mean something and sometimes don't. <laughs> um, but this, this past week, we had the deadline to exchange figures in arbitration, um, which is typically... It, it, it's the it's the, the deadline that the two sides each submit their number that were they to go to an arbitration hearing, that's the number that they are they're using that they're fighting for. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody who hasn't come to an agreement yet can't, um, or that you know they can't come up with a different number than those two entirely, or sign a longer term deal or anything like that. It's just this is the deadline that you got to submit those two figures of what each side wants to fight for should this go to an arbitration hearing and with that um that's also kind of you know it, it's it's the deadline for that submission but it also kind of ends up being a hotbed for okay all the arbitration guys sign their deals and we find out what they're going to make um and mlb trade rumors uh, matt swartz does his arbitration projections every season and they're usually very accurate, very successful. Um, those are the numbers that we use in the model for those arbitration players. Um, once those numbers are released by MLB Trade Rumors, we input those into the model. And so when that happens every offseason, you might see values shift a little bit. And then on on arbitration deal day, basically, um, you might see values shift a little bit again as we're putting in their actual contracts. And then the thing about arbitration is that it builds off of itself. So I'm going to take Michael King as an, as an example because he's a player who 
was included in that Juan Soto deal earlier this offseason, and there were some questions about his value and why we had him so high. We had him at, I want to say, $36 million, uh, in surplus, something like that. And that was because, as a reliever who had just done a little bit of starting and, you know, didn't have... He, he didn't have a full baseline season of this is me being a frontline starting pitcher for 30 starts. Um, since he didn't have that baseline or anything, he was projected pretty low in arbitration in his uh, second year of arbitration out of three. He was projected for $2.6 And then even extrapolating that out kind of generously, you know, let's say $2.6 in 2024, but then he gets more of a, a reliable starting pitching role in San Diego than he had in New York and makes 25, 27, 30 starts. Maybe he gets more than the typical arbitration boost because it's such a difference from what he was prior to that year. So even if you go as far as like doubling that projection, it's still only going to be like 5 million in, in 2025. Um, and, and so those two numbers stack up. However, his actual salary that he ended up getting in arbitration, or not in arbitration, but the, the salary that he agreed to with the Padres was $3.15 million. And on the surface, $3.15 versus $2.6, that's, that's pennies, you know, when we're talking about baseball money. That's, you know, one player at the big league minimum or so. But because of how arbitration works and because of how it builds upon itself, that's, you know... It, that ends up being a 550,000 delta between what he's actually getting and what he was projected to get. That's just for 2024. In 2025, that 550,000 delta could be doubled or tripled based on how um, based on how his arbitration salary is going to grow. So all that's to say that even some of the smaller differences in projections and what the guy actually earns in, in, in his agreement, even the smaller differences can kind of compile year after year and so if you saw any values in the system change by a few million here or there that's uh, in, in this past week that's likely why those were happening why those were changing yeah another example is jesus lazardo who came in a little bit under what we thought and so when you compound that to your point over he's got three years of control so you you then have it that has an effect on what he's likely to get in 25 and 26 and so his surplus value went up a little bit more. So he was already expensive to acquire. Now he's going to be even more expensive. So those of you who are hoping to get Lazardo, he's going to be expensive, partly for that reason. Right. And then I think the last name we wanted to touch on here, you know, touched on Michael King, but let's talk about the other side of it with Juan Soto. Uh, he was projected at 33 million and he ended up getting 31. So as far as, you know, the actual accounting from that trade, a bit of the, uh, you know, Michael King makes a little bit more in arbitration, which impacts his 2025 arbitration um, expectations. And because of that, maybe his surplus is a little bit lower than we anticipated it being at, um, at, at the time of the trade. On the flip side, at the time of the trade, we expected Juan Soto to be making 33 million, and he's actually making 31 million. So his surplus goes a little bit higher. So things are things are kind of moving both directions um, on that one. It, it, at the end of the day, it's, they're small numbers. I think we've already kind of closed the book, not, not closed the book necessarily, but we've already kind of done our piece on the Juan Soto trade and why it looked the way that it did. Uh, but just interesting to point out those two as, you know, Soto being 
the biggest arbitration eligible name this time around in setting an arbitration record here, um, beating Otani's 30 million from last season. Uh, and then the flip side of that, King being the headliner of the Padres' uh, return for Soto and, and how his numbers are changing as well. So to summarize, there were some minor changes to their surplus value equation based on how these numbers kind of shook out. So our whole framework for this side based on trade is based on surplus value, right? And it's proven to be pretty effective over time. Um, but you can take that religiously and, and say, okay, that is absolutely the number. Or you can be a reasonable person with common sense and say, yeah, there are other factors involved. The Yankees were really desperate for a superstar. They had to overpay to get Soto. That's going to happen sometimes. The Dodgers uh, head of baseball operations, Jeffrey Friedman, says if you don't overpay, you're not getting the, the big star. So he overpaid for Mookie Betts back in the day. So like all these things are, you know, we know. So we're saying, yes, we can we can get really wonky with the numbers and surplus value and get precise, or we can just say, you know what, that's what the surplus value is, and there's some give or take here coming out, and we won't point it out. Right, and that ties back to something we say pretty frequently about you know, just because a deal is accepted by the model doesn't mean it's a good trade. Just because a deal is not accepted by the model does not mean it's a bad trade. Like there, there's subjectivity involved all around and the numbers, the surplus value numbers kind of help provide a framework here and keep you within the realm of reality of, okay, they're not going to trade Spencer Jones for Juan Soto. They're not going to trade... You know, you know, Anthony Volpe for Juan Soto, uh, but they're also not going to trade Domingo Herman for Juan Soto. Like there, it keeps you in the, in the frame of reality where, you know, a lot of baseball, a lot, a lot of rational baseball fans already existed, but a lot of, of these types didn't. And you can take a look back at the article we did a couple years back on Jim Bowden's trade proposals. If you want some, some further context there. Um, but beyond that framework and we think it is it is obviously pretty accurate when it comes to estimating those surplus values we, we think it's proven to be pretty accurate in that in that decree but there's always going to be edge cases there's always going to be error bars and there's always going to be some of these intangibles or team specific needs that the model can't account for and that's kind of where the Juan Soto deal felt fell and um uh, probably a couple of the trades that we're talking about uh, a little later on in this episode will fall into that category as well. Sounds good. Let's go. Actually, before we do that, I think the last name we wanted to mention very quickly uh, for arbitration was Vlad Guerrero Jr. Uh, Guerrero and the Blue Jays did not reach an agreement uh, before the deadline, and they did file numbers. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go to trial, but it seems like more and more in recent years, teams are adopting the file and trial approach for some reason, which is basically what it sounds like that we're going to submit. If we get to the point of submitting numbers and we don't have an agreement, then we're just going to let the arbitrator decide it instead of haggling for the next couple months um, before that point. So it seems likely that they will go to an arbitration panel. Um, the Jays filed at 18.05 million and Guerrero filed at 19.9, so that's a pretty sizable gap. Um, it's almost $2 million between the two sides. And this is Guerrero's second year of arbitration, or um, uh, second to last year of arbitration, I should say, um, because he was a Super 2 player, so it's actually his third season of ARB. Um, but all that to say that this is already a pretty sizable total for Vlad, regardless of which number he ends up, 1805 or 19.9. And he was not 
all that great in 2023. And so he's really going to need a bounce back in 2024. Otherwise, we might be looking at Vlad Guerrero Jr. as a non-tender candidate because if he's getting $18 million, even if he has a very similar season to his 2023 kind of disappointing year, the way that arbitration works, it, it builds on itself and he will likely end up in, you know, the mid-20s maybe, you know, low mid-20 million. And the Jays might just decide that he's not worth one year and 23 million for that kind of production. And it could be a Cody Bellinger situation. Um, that's, that's a lot of ifs. And obviously Vlad Guerrero Jr. is still very young, was very highly regarded as a prospect, has had a lot of big league success. So there's certainly room for a bounce back here. Um, but it is something to put on your radar now that he's getting more expensive and getting closer to free agency. Yeah, so let's break it down a little bit. Vlad has two years of control left. Um, our numbers suggest his field value over those two years is 59.4. He, let's say he ends up around 20 million in projection next year. He could get as high as 30 and, or even 31, uh, depending on how the math shakes out. Because typically you get about a 50% raise in your final year of arbitration. Because again, it builds on itself and that's just sort of standard and that's what an arbitrator would look at. And also, um, the fact that he hits a lot of home runs is also sort of valued in sort of the arbitration climate where they look at sort of your success. So the math is he's going to be worth about 59.4 and he's going to get, you know, we were saying 51, which gives him a surplus of only 8.4. If you look at how that breaks down year by year, um, we're looking at 2024 um, sort of. He's going to be worth 28.8 and get 20.4, but in, in the following year, um, he's actually going to be under. He's going to be 25.6 field value and 30.6 in salary. So that looks like a non-tender situation there. So in effect, you're basically paying for one year of Vlad unless he changes. Now, there are some smart people who think he's going to change. If you look at the projection system, um, Steamer, for example, expects him to turn it around. Uh, and that's largely because of aging curves. Aging curves know that it, Vlad is still young. He's only 24. You typically hit your prime starting around age 25, maybe 26, and sort of in the late 20s is typically your prime. So they're kind of banking on that. So if you look at his war numbers, 2021, he had 6.3. Fantastic year. But 2022, he really fell off to 2.8. And 23, he fell off again to only one war. Now, you could argue that he's he's that player now. He's a one war player, in which case he's definitely a non but if you buy sort of the aging curve effect and steamers sort of banking on that, and he's going to turn it around to 4.1, then he might be okay. We factored all of that into our equations, um, and so we're kind of splitting the difference. Um, but you can't deny he's been kind of in the decline. His defense is not great. His, uh, you know, his, his offensive numbers have been declined. Diversity plus has gone from 166 to 133 to 119. That's a worrisome trend. So not to suggest he's going to be a non-tender candidate in 2025, but if you think of Vlad the as kind of like a budding superstar who's gonna, you know, um, you know, like if you were to trade him, he would get a haul back. Doesn't look like he's gonna get a haul back. Let's that look at that. If not that the Blue Jays would ever trade him, but there's not a lot of surplus value here based on our calculations. Right. And it's we're getting further and further away from his big twenty twenty one season. And the yeah. further we get from that, the less that's going to play into projections. Right. And so you're right that the aging curve does kind of give him a boost and it, and it makes sense you know i think that agrees with what any rational person would say about vlad that 
we've seen his peak at age 22 and how effective he can be, it would be wrong to bet against that at this point, right? It would be wrong to say that we think, yeah, after seeing that 2021, we think, yeah, he's just a true talent, one-win player. Like, I don't think anybody is saying that. And so in that sense, the projections align with kind of fan expectations as well and, and just baseball media expectations of this guy has more in the tank. Um, but you're right. The question is, how close does he get to those projections? How close does he get to that 2021 season? And this is kind of a make or break year for that because, you know, on, on the worst case scenario, if he repeats his 2023 season, well, then his last superstar season, his real only superstar season, is now four years in the past, and teams pay for future production, not past production, correct, but you, you got to use past production to educate your, your expectations for future production. So teams aren't going to be that optimistic about a guy coming off of two one-win seasons and, and you know four years removed from his last real superstar season. On the flip side of that, if, if he is anywhere near that superstar level, then yeah, it's a no-brainer. So it, it just makes this 2024 a real make-or-break season for him, not only for his upcoming free agency, which is what I think a lot of people would have in mind, but just to, to make sure he's he's a valuable player that the Blue Jays want to hang on to in 2025, which is, you know, I, I think would surprise a lot of fans that he is so close to being a non-tender candidate, or at least looks like it at, the, at this stage, so... Just something to keep on your radar. And, um, you know, a year before Cody Bellinger was non-tendered, nobody would have seen it coming. And this is kind of our warning signal that, hey. We kind of did. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, the layman would not have seen it coming. Um, And so this is our kind of warning of, hey, remember when people might have been blindsided by that last time? Well, we're just going to put the feelers out there that uh, this could happen again with Vladdy. Okay, um, almost an hour into the recording. Let's talk about trades, John. <laughs> That's um, what we're known for. Yep, there were some weird ones. Uh, the I mentioned Jerry Depoto earlier, and uh, yeah, he made his he made his name known once again in the past couple weeks. Um, the biggest one was when he traded left-handed pitcher Robbie Ray at negative forty-three point two million in surplus trade value to the San Francisco Giants in exchange for outfielder Mitch Hanniger, negative 29.7, right-handed pitcher Anthony Desclafani, negative 1.1, and cash, which was reportedly $6 million. Um, original reports had that cash at $3 million, and with $3 million in cash, it was a it was barely accepted by the model, major overpay by the Giants. Um, but then an updated report came in listing the cash at $6 million, and that tipped the scales, and this deal was rejected. And so... A lot to break down here because it's kind of a dead money for not 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 necessarily a dead money for dead money swap. These are certainly underwater contracts, but this isn't, you know, let's swipe let's swap Evan White for David Fletcher and Max Stassi. This isn't quite that. These guys all have some level of expectation, some level of potential to produce for their teams during the remainder of their contracts, and it's more so about reallocating you know, the timing of, of money as well as positions here. So obviously the Giants have a lot more needs in their starting rotation than the Mariners do right now. The Mariners have a pretty stocked up young rotation that they're pretty high on. And Robbie Ray is out 
for likely the first half of 2025, uh, 2024 season due to Tommy John's surgery. And so he was really only going to be an option for them in the second half and would have been more of a luxury than anything else, I, I think, or at least uh, would be projected to be that way. As for the Giants, he gets to be a real nice shot in the arm for them in, in the second half here. And, you know, this is this is all playing into the expectation that Robbie Ray can bounce back somewhere close to where he used to be. I think there's some questions, you know, injury aside of what you should expect out of Robbie Ray going forward. He was fantastic in that Cy Young season in 2021. He was kind of just okay for the Mariners after they signed him to that big deal in 2022. And then he didn't pitch for them in 2023, really, because of the injury. So it's it's kind of tough to evaluate, tough to really set expectations of what to think of Robbie Ray. Especially, you know, the further you pull back that curtain, 2020 season was kind of a disaster for him. 2019 season wasn't all that amazing either. Like, he, he's been a real up-and-down guy throughout his whole career. He's had some command issues that he's battled. He's had some home run issues. He's had some injuries. And he's just a really tough guy to put your finger on even before you get to the Tommy John surgery and what you really want to expect from him in the second half of 2024 since... As we've discussed before, there's kind of a, a grace period, not a grace period, a uh, like a, a rehab period, I guess, where you're kind of shaking off the rust in that first year back from Tommy John more often than not, and you're really not back to full strength until the following season. So is there a chance that Robbie Ray comes back second half for the Giants and is just nails? He's, he's like a mid-rotation armor better? Sure. Is that the most likely outcome? I don't think so. So... It's really more so a move for the following seasons for the Giants. Uh, at least it looks like it from the outset for us. And then really quick on the flip side before I hand this to, to you, John, for your take. Uh, Mitch Hanniger goes back to the Mariners. Good for them. Um, their outfield picture was really scary <laughs> after trading Kelnick. They were looking at a lot of playing time from the Cade Marlowe's and Sam Haggerty's of the world and that just and Taylor Trammell and... and Nothing against those guys, but that's not ideal if you're trying to fight with the Astros and Rangers for a playoff spot. Um, so Hanniger, for all of his flaws and, and inabilities to stay on the field, it, he almost has to be an upgrade <laughs> over what they had going. And, you know, if they can tap into what he used to be with the Mariners, you know, bringing him back home to Seattle, then that's obviously a huge win for them. Um, so he fits their roster a lot better than Ray did. And then Disclafani can be kind of a back-end swingman, depth arm, reliever, whatever they need him to be. Um, he's a lot closer to closer to zero, closer to, to fair value on his current contract, um, his one-year deal, than any of the other players in this deal. So he's he's more of a, like, let's let's get some pitching depth in this deal. He didn't really move the needle from a value perspective too much. Um, so I will pause there and I will pass this to you, John, for your take and to maybe get into it a little bit more of why each side might have made this deal, especially the Giants and, and kind of how the financials shake out. Yeah. So um, I think the Mariners made it to save money in the long run because Ray is owed more money um, over time. And so this kind of clears the books after this season. Um, the Giants need to do stuff, right? They've been under pressure. We've talked about this in previous podcasts. Um, Varhan, Varhan keeps striking out on free agent deals and he keep, he's now gotten a reputation for being kind of a 
tinkerer with like glow to mid sort of style acquisitions and platooning and all that. And he wants to make a bigger move, but he seems still kind of hamstrung. So this is sort of that way. How can I get a pitcher with upside? Oh, I'll make a negative value deal. Now, as far as the numbers, um, you know, there's the numbers say this one was a little off, but my gut says it's probably not as off as it might or it might look. Um, and the reason for that is it's really hard to model Robbie Ray for the reasons you mentioned. Number one is his injury, and number two is his inconsistency. Um, so we have our formulas and we apply them. But when you have like zeros, like he didn't pitch in 2023, you know, we can skip that. But then we're going back a few years, and then he was up and down in those years as well. And then you've got the fact that you don't know what he's going to be at his age coming off of Tommy John. Tommy John. There are error bars there as well. And so we were a little conservative on that, perhaps too conservative with the with the numbers. Um, you know, Hanniger, I feel like we're probably a lot closer. He's had his injuries as well, and it seems pretty clear that he's not the same player he was in his prime, and he's had some injuries that can really affect him. Um, so I feel like Ray is probably, you know, and the other reason is we don't, we're not injury risk experts. We can apply it, a formula based on Tommy John successes and what, and, you know, to your point, you're probably not the same when you come back and you, you kind of take another year to kind of get back in the swing of things. So uh, long story short, Ray was probably a little bit under. Um, uh, and, you know, it's probably a fair deal when you work it out. They've got the teams have more sophisticated information and injury information than we do. So we're doing our best to take a shot at it. So anyway, long story short is I think this one makes sense as a is a negative value for negative value swap and a need swap. And so I'll leave it at that, and I'll I'll take the L in terms of the uh, uh, the model um, because it's there's things we don't know. Um, so that's you know that's kind of my take. Yeah, a couple thoughts there. One, pulling up Robbie Ray's contract, he has an opt out after 2024. That's really a non-factor. Yeah. Um, it's it would be really really hard for him to come back in the second half of 2024 from Tommy John and hit the ground running and really pitch well enough to say, I'm going to turn down the the $50 million I'm guaranteed for the next yeah. two years because I think I'm getting more on the open market. That's a real long shot. So I, I that that's not really a factor here. Is there some 99th percentile outcome where, yes, he does exactly that? He's, you know, peak Randy Johnson down the stretch for the Giants and suddenly the top free agent pitcher in 2024-2025 offseason sure that's possible but it's also possible that Mitch Haniger wins the triple crown so let's maybe let's stay away from the 99th percentile possibilities there um the the, the opt-out shouldn't be much of a factor here um the other thought I have is if you can if the Giants can really reasonably trust that you know I, I don't think anybody's evaluating Robbie Ray as 2021 Robbie Ray I think even at the time most folks, and I bet even the Mariners, if you ask them when they signed him to this deal, they would say, we do not expect him to replicate 2021. That was, you know, way over his head, way over his career norms. He outperformed his peripherals. He was really, really good, but nobody saw that happening again. And I think if you also asked the Mariners after 2022, they'd say, we were, you know, we expected maybe a little bit better from him, but this isn't too far from reality. He made 32 starts. 189 innings, 371 ERA, not bad. Peripherals, FIP a little bit higher, XFIP a little bit lower. End of the day, he's about a two-win player, according to Fangraph's war. And, you know, maybe for all that money, they were hoping he'd be more like a three-win guy. But that's still not a horrible outcome. And I think if you're the Giants, 
and you say we 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 think that's closer to his true talent and we've seen his medicals we think he's progressing fine and has come back from tommy john and we think he will be fine then yeah I, I think like you're saying john the trade makes a lot more sense if if they're looking at at this guy as like a two-ish win player for 2025 and 2026 i think if anything that tips the bar in their favor on this trade so maybe that's too aggressive for them you have to factor in okay what if he hurts himself again what if he loses a tick coming back what if he loses some command coming back so there's certainly risk involved in that but if that is kind of their like 75th percentile or 60th percentile outcome is he comes back 2024 is kind of a wash and then he's like a two-ish win guy in 2025 2026 I think that makes the trade a win for them and I think that um I think that kind of justifies making the trade so that's kind of how I'm looking at it um and then the last point I want to make here is yes the model was off here because of all the reasons that you mentioned and just how much uncertainty there is with Robbie Ray but like at some point you just shrug your shoulders right at some point there are players like this where everyone is going to be wrong right <laughs> like i i would really be surprised if any baseball fan anywhere prior to this trade was like i think the giants should trade for robbie ray and i think a fair trade would be mitch hanniger and anthony disclafani like that's that's not something that anybody came up with on their own like not not to like make excuses for the model necessarily but there's always going to be some of these edge cases there's always going to be players that just have too much going on and nobody really knows what they're worth until they're traded so i i, I think that's that's where i can categorize this one in my head at least yeah and i would say one last point is you know pitching is in short supply so if they buy the upside of robbie ray yeah you could sort of squint and see it like yeah maybe he comes back in 2024 and he's Maybe not his his previous high, but close enough to a two to three win pitcher, and then he's got you just basically just you just cost the money. So in a way, you can look at it as kind of a you know a jump on the free agent market for next year. Right, and I be, I, I don't have it pulled up right now. I believe the pitching market is a little bit weaker next year um, than it was this off season, and and there's a lot more hitters, and so maybe they're just like like you're saying, like kind of jumping on that market getting an arm now so they don't have to worry about it quite as much then, and then they can focus on some of those top bats that'll be available. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be Corbin Burns, who's going to cost you a huge amount of money, and this, uh, Max Freed will cost a lot, and there's a few others. But but yeah, um, just as a kind of a sneaky move under the radar, assuming he doesn't opt out, and maybe he's his best self next year, so maybe you got something. That's Farhan's style, is to kind of dig under rocks a little bit and find something. And let's use this to segue into another move the Giants have made. We'll, we'll get back to the Mariners and their other trade in just a minute here. But uh, the Giants also signed Jordan Hicks to a four-year, $44 million deal. Um, and they're reportedly going to use him as a starter. So we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. If that's just kind of glorified opener, he's going to go two or three innings. Or if they're going to try and push him you know, twice through the rotation or what it'll look like. Um, he's had a few attempts in the rotation that haven't gone all that well. He's seemed a lot more comfortable in his relief role, and, and he was kind of projected to be one of the top relievers available um, on the market. So it's interesting that both he and both he and Ronaldo Lopez, those were, you know, arguably the two best right-handed pitching uh, 
relief options on the market. You could you could quibble with Robert Stevenson getting included in that mix as well. And both of them signed deals where they're going to be at least initially used as starting pitchers. That's interesting to me, and I guess it just kind of speaks to how much everybody needs starting pitching and feels like that they can pull Joe Blow off the scrap heap and he'll be their next seventh inning guy. So maybe that's a trend to keep an eye on for future off-seasons. Um, but for Hicks specifically, since the model had him modeled as a reliever, we projected four years of him to be worth $33.2 million. So that's a pretty big gap between... Um, what he actually got of, of 44 million. And so part of that could be just that he was modeled as a reliever and uh, starters are inherently more valuable. So if you do model him as a starter, that number, uh, that projection likely goes up a little bit, but it could also speak to kind of what we were talking about with the Ray deal of like the giants have had trouble getting guys to come to town. So maybe they just need to pay a few million extra and, and maybe that's it. So this was certainly weird to me first the dollar amount and then hearing that he's going to be a starter but it has since settled in and made a little bit more sense i still don't know if i love it but i i think farhan deserves the benefit of the doubt at least a little bit and and so i'll i'm i'm fine i'm content to sit back and and watch and see what happens here i I maybe have to counter that because i just don't see it i mean uh, okay so He's never started. Well, maybe a couple starts, but but primarily he's been a reliever, right? So you have to use common sense and model him as a reliever, which is what we did. And he's been a very good reliever when he's healthy. He's also had injury, injury, quite a bit of persistent injury issues, which makes the idea of him adding on to his workload even more sort of suspect. In addition to that, you know, his fastball is his thing, right? He can throw 100 miles an hour easily. And so if you're stretching him out to a starter, maybe you're not getting the benefit of that as much as opposed to kind of a lockdown sort of eighth inning guy. So I, yeah, I'm really struggling with, with him being a starter. And then if you look at sort of the bigger picture, like how many of these have actually worked? Okay, Seth Lugo, maybe. He, but he started out as a starter, you know, early in his, in his MLB career. And then he moved to the uh, pen, and then he was really good in the pen. And so then he said, okay, he's trying to start again. He's been okay. Um but how many of these other guys have done that? Justin Springs, and then he got injured. Like you, part of it is increasing your workload, which makes you even more susceptible to injury. Ah, I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time with this one, Josh. Um, I, I think, I think it's a stretch. Uh, I really think they stretch because of the reasons we just mentioned. He's got to do something, and it's like sometimes he's playing 40 chess when he really shouldn't be. Like this one, I think is a little bit of an overreach. Not that Hicks is, isn't a quality talent. He is. But I just don't see him as a starter. Yeah, I, I definitely see all of that. And I think my only my only interpretation of it that really makes sense to me is obviously for both him and Lopez, you're not, when you sign these guys to four-year deal and say you're going to use them as a starter or three years for Lopez, you're not guaranteeing the guy, yep, you're going to be in the rotation for the entirety of all four or all three of those seasons. And so it's just, hey, we're going to try this out and see what happens. And, you know, obviously the worst case scenario is like you said, you know, it's the Jeffrey Springs of he, the increased workload, he just can't handle it. It's too big of a ramp up and he hurts himself. And now you've lost him for potentially two years of that four year deal. And you don't know what he's going to look like when he comes back as even if you do send him back to the bullpen. So that's kind of the risk that you're taking. But I could also see the flip side to that argument being like, yes, but 
they could also get hurt as relievers because as relievers they're more consistently maxing out and they're going high intensity triple digits more regularly than they would as a starter and so if it's just a case of we're going to try him out as a starter and see what happens and if it works it works great we have a jeffrey springs if it doesn't work well we can send him back to the bullpen and and we really didn't cost ourselves much outside of you know a slightly increased injury risk there which which some injury risk would have already been present even if you just use him as a as a reliever the whole time through so that's the only way i can really like wrap my mind around it and i i see the logic there i certainly don't think this is you know an undermarket deal i certainly don't think this is a deal that i would have made or expected a team to make but and so maybe that speaks a little bit to what you're saying as well right of, of a little bit too much 4d chess on this one um i could see it working out i could also see it failing miserably um <laughs> but i guess it's it's not my money right so I'll yeah watch. exactly okay so so I'll, I'll i'll grant you two other points in, in their favor one is um they have plenty of money and it's like they're burning a hole like one of the like we talked about the the challenges some of these other teams are facing where they're cutting back based on revenue issues the giants are fine and with the kind of deterioration of the A's, they pretty much own the Bay Area, a whole Northern California market, and they got plenty of revenue. They got rich owners. So they've, they've got money to spend. So in effect, their problem is the opposite. Their problem is what do we spend it on? Nobody wants to take our money. So like, okay, here's a guy that will take our money. So like, okay, fine. And number two is I can kind of see the argument that if you're Jordan Hicks and you typically throw 100 plus in one inning, maybe if you stretch him out, he'll throw... I'm thinking Frankie Montas here, 98, 97, and maybe that's easier on the arm than, you know, one high-intensity inning every other day. I don't know. I'm not a pitching expert, but maybe that's the logic, and you can still get people out with 97, 98 as a starter, and maybe he's added a second pitch. Putting a lot of uh, uh, a lot of pressure on your pitching staff, your coaching staff, and I, I, clearly they must have confidence in their coaching staff to, to, to be able to kind of work with him on that. But, you know, you're still overpaying because you're you're basically overpaying for the possibility of that, whereas the actual evidence isn't really there. So I've just sort of argued with myself. I still don't like it. Right. It's it's a lot of risks and a lot of maybes for a four-year yeah. guarantee. Too many ifs. Yeah. Yeah. The the four years is really what's weird to me. If, if you told me that they were going to try this on a two-year deal at, at a higher AAV, still probably an overpay, but I think it's easier to get us on board with that. But four years is, uh, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot that can go wrong in four years. Um, Drew Pomeranz right, says hello. Oh, yes, that's a good call. <laughs> um, let's shift back to the Mariners. Uh, at about the same time as the Robbie Ray trade, they made another deal. They flipped Jose Caballero, at, who we had at $4.8 in surplus, to the Tampa Bay Rays in exchange for first baseman slash outfielder Luke Rayleigh at 10.1 million in surplus. So there's a gap there accepted by the model, um, but as a moderate overpay by the Rays. But I, that's that's kind of with an asterisk on it, I feel like. Uh, the model, kind of similarly to um, what we were just discussing with Hicks, um, the model had Caballero as a second baseman. And we have a second base penalty that we've noticed in previous seasons because second basemen are kind of a dime a dozen. And pretty much ev most most infielders can be slid over to second base if you need to. And so nobody's paying a premium for a Colton Wong or a Josh Harrison or whoever, an Adam Frazier. 
And that was something that we caught early on in the model that we were way off on those trades. And that was why that we had overvalued the second baseman relative to the market. So we made that adjustment and it's been very successful since then. Uh, however, the Rays clearly are looking at Caballero as a shortstop option. Um, they've lost Wander Franco and they have a gaping hole now at shortstop. And Caballero is a pretty good defender who primarily played second base with the Mariners because J.P. Crawford was at shortstop there, but looked good at both middle infield spots when he played them. So it seems fairly reasonable to expect him to, to hold his own at shortstop. And he's, you know, he's not setting the world on fire as a hitter, but he's a solid bat. He's got some speed. He's a tough out in the batter's box. Apparently he's, he's really pesky. <laughs> I think he, he got hit by pitches a lot. He forced a lot of like pitch clock violations last year. Just one of those kind of scrappy in the box type of guys. And so it makes sense that the Rays would value him. And it also makes sense that they might be a little bit lower than our 10.1 number on Luke Rayleigh. Um, Rayleigh, a late bloomer. He's been traded a handful of times. Um, former kind of middle of the pack prospect uh, with the Dodgers. And he burst onto the scene last year and was really, really good for the Rays in the first half. I remember you and I talking about him at some point halfway through the season when we were talking about the Rays going, what the heck is happening here? What are they, what are they feeding this guy? Like <laughs> he's got a 160 WRC plus or whatever it was. Uh, he really tailed off on that in the second half, which, which is to be expected. You know, he's, he never had that kind of hype around him. It was really a hot start more than anything else. But when you look at the totality of it, it was a 130 WRC plus, and that's a left-handed upgrade for the outfield that the Mariners really needed. I mean, you can really directly compare Rayleigh and Jared Kelnick, and I think you could have a real good argument over which one of them is going to be more productive in 2024. Granted, Kelnick's a lot younger, probably a better defender, and you would you would expect his remaining five years of team control to go a lot better than Luke Rayleigh's remaining five years of team control. So it's not to say that the Mariners are totally off the hook for that trade and that they've, you know, picked up a, a perfect replacement for Jared Kelnick's remaining five seasons or anything like that. But in the short term, I think they've really replaced his production and they have some options at second base to backfill for Caballero. Um, Josh Rojas came over in the Paul Seawald trade. So did uh, Ryan Bliss, a second base prospect that they're really excited about. So there's, there's some options there, uh, a couple other names on the farm as well that they could sub around. And as we mentioned, second base is usually an easy position to fill. So I like this a lot from both sides, I think. I mean, I, I, you can go back and forth on it on, you know, obviously the values favor Seattle here, um, but the Rays are the Rays and they make a lot of smart trades and there's a lot to like about Caballero and some reasons to kind of fade Rayleigh. But I think it's just a clean trade on both sides. I think they both got what they needed and gave up something that they didn't need quite as much. Yeah, I mean, if you look at just future production, they both have similar years of control ahead, maybe Caballero a little bit more. But um, in totality, Rayleigh put up 2.6 FWAR uh, last year, and Caballero, in a slightly smaller sample size, put up 2.2. Um, projection systems like Steamer predict excuse me, project rejection. <laughs> what am I saying? Can't talk. Project um, uh, regression to the mean. So uh, Steamer projects Rayleigh at 1.1 and Caballero um, 0.9. So pretty close. So this is, you could argue this is kind of a need for need sort of thing, and it's exactly what it is. Um, there's a, some other sort of warts as well. Neither one of these guys was considered a prospect. Um, 
Caballero is going to be 27 this year. Rayleigh is already 29. He's out of options. So he was looking like a quad A guy, and Rays picked him up and kind of made something out of him, found found something that could make him tick, and sold high on him. Um, Caballero is kind of a similar thing. He's a pesky hitter, but you know a lot of his value came from his defense and his on base percentage. You mentioned you know the hit bats being good, but you know his batting average two twenty one. He's got no power, so he's basically an on base guy um, with some defense, and that's fine, right? And if you're not paying an arm and leg for him, you got got him for another I think six years of control. So I think it's one of those smart raise moves. Um, like again, he's not going to be a superstar, but he's going to be probably a, turn out to be a valuable utility infielder. I don't know if he's going to long-term shortstop. You know, it doesn't look like Franco's situation is going to resolve uh, positively for them. So they're going to have to find a longer-term solution at short, and I expect that Caballero will slot in somewhere as a utility infielder. Um, so, you know, it's fine in that respect. And the other thing I would point out is because of just the way our model works, uh, Caballero was not considered a top prospect. You know, he was productive in his in his – uh, in his MLB step start in 2023. So the more productive you are, it's like kind of sliding scale. The more that will kind of like take over from the initial expectations of the prospect setup. Um, so, you know, over time you could see his value grow if he continues to be productive. Um, Ray Lee is what he is. You know, he'll probably just be a, a corner platoon guy and that's that. And, you know, you know, it's one of those things where like, yeah, it's going to work out fine for both teams and the guts, the gut, thing says yeah the need for need i'm fine with it yeah and it certainly helps that the rays turned around and potentially acquired the next luke rayley if we want to transition that way mm -hmm. they uh they picked up richie palacios outfielder um who we had at 3.9 million in surplus from the st louis cardinals in exchange for right-handed reliever andrew kitteridge who we'd had at 0 0.2 million in surplus um, so a bit of a gap there as well. Still goes through as a minor overpay by St. Louis. Um, Palacios was a minor acquisition for the Cardinals about halfway through last year uh, during the summer. And he got some outfield time for them down the stretch when they were just kind of having that miserable second half and had some guys go down to injury. And, and he looked pretty good. He looked pretty good in the minors after joining their organization. And he looked pretty good in a, a limited major league stint. Um, but at the end of the day, the Cardinals have a lot of depth in the outfield, and they needed to resolve that somehow. And they also have a lot of needs on the pitching staff, as we <laughs> went very deep into earlier in this episode. Um, so this makes a lot of sense from their standpoint, even if, you know, there's a bit of a value gap per se. Part of that is with Kidridge, he just came back from injury, and that's kind of pulling him down a little bit. But if they have favorable expectations for his full return from that injury, from Tommy John... Uh, then it's it's very easy to see somebody see a team valuing him higher than that 0 0.2 million. So makes sense from their end. Makes sense from the Rays' end as well. They do this all the time. They churn their pitchers, especially in the bullpen, and and flip them for value when they can. And Palacios, as a left-handed bat in the outfield, could really just slot right into that Luke Rayleigh role. I don't think he'll post 130 WRC plus. I don't think anybody is expecting that from Palacios or from Luke Rayleigh. Um, but he's at least another left-handed hitting option for them um, to take some outfield time, take some DH time, and they can, they can roll the dice there and maybe they found their perfect replacement. Yeah. I mean, this is another one that makes sense for both sides, right? The Cardinals, we talked about them need to kind of juice things up a little bit and, 
Kittredge is a former all-star. Really, when he's on, he can be really devastating as a reliever. Um, he's not a closer, but he's a good seventh inning guy, maybe eighth inning guy. Um, and you're hoping that he bounces back from the injury and, and is back to his old self. Now, the downside is you only got one year of control with Kittredge. Um, and because there's some question marks in terms of his durability and his injury, you know, sort of issues, uh, and the fact that he's in his last year of control and is getting his third year of arbitration money, that's why there's not a lot of surplus there. So they're basically just getting one year of, you know, a guy that's reasonably valued, uh, you know, not worth much more on paper than his salary. Uh, but there's still maybe a little bit of upside there. Palacios, yes, it's the Rays thing. Get a guy who's pre-arb, who's shown a little bit of ability, even as a platoon guy. One thing I will note is he's only down to one option, so you can move him up and down this coming year in 2024, but after that, you've burned it through, in which case he's going to have to make the roster going forward in 2025 on. So they'll get a year out of him, see how he does and then figure it out from there. And they've been known to do that before. Rayleigh, I think, was out of options as well. Um, prior to that, uh, Jose Siri was out of options. So that doesn't necessarily scare them away because they're still looking for value. So, they'll, But they, they do have to consider it, and so they'll see how he does this year. Yeah, I wonder if they see something either way where, you know, at the end of the day, if they have to lose, you know, if Richie Palacios doesn't work out or if Luke Rayleigh hadn't worked out, and they had to lose them. Well, the acquisition cost was low anyway, so maybe the options don't matter to them quite as much on that yeah, standpoint. Right. And then with Jose, yeah. right? And, and then with Siri, I think I, I, it's it's tough to find a scenario where you would want to option Jose Siri because he works fine as a bench, you know, glove and speed guy. He's he's got those carrying tools that can stick on a roster even if his bat goes away. And so I wonder if it's less of a consideration for a guy like him. Yeah, fair point. All right, let's move to the last significant trade um, from the last couple weeks here. Um, I don't want to call it a head-scratcher. If you just look at the numbers, it is. But I think, in reality, it, it makes some sense, and, and there's some reasons that the numbers are off here. So the Dodgers sent infielder Michael Bush at $17.2 million in surplus and right-handed reliever Yancy Almonte at 0.4 to the Cubs. In exchange for right-handed pitching prospect Jackson Ferris at 5.2 and outfielder Zaire Hope, who was not yet in the system. And so, significant gap there. It's 17.6 to the Cubs, 5.2 with an asterisk to the Dodgers, since we don't have Hope in the system yet. Um, and so, just looking at that, it's like, what the heck is going on here? And we did see some reports, I believe just today, just this morning, from Ken Rosenthal, um, that Michael Bush was shopped a little bit to the White Sox as a potential piece of a Dylan Cease trade, and it just never came to pass. Um, and, and so that's not to say that Michael Bush is some star prospect or anything. He certainly has his warts, but he is a legitimate prospect. He was a 50 future value by fan graphs and highly regarded by other publications as well. And he just really hasn't gotten his big league opportunity yet. He's 26, which is a little bit on the older side for a prospect now. Um, but he really has only, yeah, he's only had 27 games, 81 plate appearances at the big league level. They didn't go well, but I don't think anybody is totally writing him off based off of that alone. He's really been impressive in the minor leagues as a guy with some patience and some power and doesn't strike out too, too much and can play a few positions on the infield, potentially some corner outfield as well. Um, the defense is a little bit more of a question. But it looks like the bat's going to play at the big league level is, is really the takeaway here. And so that type of player has some value. And 
it's at first glance concerning <laughs> to see that type of player traded for a couple of lower level, lower ranked prospects. Um, but this really just speaks to the hard time that we're always going to have with some of these prospects, especially recent draftees, recent, recent international signings where John and I are not scouts, nor is anybody else working with baseball trade values. We don't have our eyes on these guys on a day-to-day basis. We don't have our ears tuned to the industry to see, oh, this guy's getting some buzz. He's he's got some helium right now. We typically only find out about that kind of thing after a guy is traded. And so we are we're waiting on public uh, prospect resources to update us and thankfully a lot of those resources have updated much more frequently in the last couple years but there's always going to be guys like ferris and hope that kind of slip through the cracks there and after the trade goes through you hear six different prospect guys go oh yeah i've been hearing really good things about these guys they they definitely have like they have helium they have an up arrow Uh, they're trending up like it makes sense that the the dodgers would target these guys and then of course the other consideration here before i toss it to you john um the roster so Bush and Almonte were both on the 40-man. Ferris and Hope do not need to be protected for another handful of years. And especially important because the Dodgers had just signed Teoscar Hernandez and needed a roster spot for him. And so this also clears up a second roster spot for, for a future signing or move and uh, does so in a way where they're not just cutting bait on a guy. So we've talked in the past about how 40-man consideration really matters and it can cost a team leverage in cases like this where everyone in the league knows that they need to free up a space for Teoscar Hernandez so perhaps they have a little bit lower leverage in their trade discussions for some of the fringe 40-man type guys um, we just typically don't see that show with a guy as valuable as Bush but uh, that, that likely played some some level of a role here as well there's a lot to unpack here so let's start with the roster crunch side of it for the Dodgers so um, if I remember correctly so they were at 40 a full roster uh, when they uh, when the Teoscar signing was reported. Now you have a couple of days until you officially announce that, right? So they had a couple of days to work something out, and so we knew they had to like at least um, cut at least one, if not two, to make room. So they were at forty. If they get if they remove two guys from the roster, puts them at thirty-eight, and then that allows you to announce Teoscar with him at thirty-nine, and then with one of them to make room if they want to. So they had to cut at least one. Um, so we knew something was coming, right? So that put pressure on, on the Dodgers. Now, everybody in the industry knew there was pressure on the Dodgers because they had to do this, right? So then who, the question became who, who they're going to cut. They had already kind of cut from the bottom um, with Ryan Hudson getting rid of him uh, for a previous move. And so they're like getting to the point now where it was going to hurt, right? So now what are your options when it's going to hurt? Um, Michael Bush was blocked. Right, and you don't really know what the defensive position he has. He's played some second base, he's played some first base, and they say maybe can cut it at third. We'll see. But but you know he was cut. I mean, sorry, he was blocked in each one of those positions by the Dodgers. So it made sense that you know he was on the block. In addition to which, he had a poor performance in his MLB showing, which dropped his stock a little bit. In addition to which, um, he's 26, so he's not getting any younger. And you got it sort of. You know, if he doesn't find a spot, maybe he's languishing and he becomes like a quad A guy. But he's too talented of a bat for that to happen. So they knew, okay, there's some interest there, right? So he came up, became a logical trade candidate. So we're going to move a guy off the 40. He's a logical one. The question then becomes one of value. So um, 
if he's your top prospect or at least one of them, and according to Baseball America, he was your top prospect based on how the bat is, um, that's still a lot of value to give up. We know, having talked to front offices, that teams will overpay for upside, even if the ratings that we follow publicly don't show it. So that's the case, I think, with, that is happening here. So Jackson Ferris uh, was ranked uh, 10th by Baseball America in the Cubs system. Um, he's still you know, pretty green. Uh, they gave him a 55 grade with extreme risk, which means he's a high bust, he's a high bust, high risk, high reward. Um, but Hope did not make their top 30, which I found interesting. He was 11th round draft pick. Now, some people say, well, that's because of flammability, and he actually got third round money, so okay, fine. Let's say he was a third rounder then, if you if you look at it that way, and he still didn't make the top 30. And that's still quite a reach to say he was like worth that much. So basically, the Dodgers gave up their top pro their top hitting prospect, if you will, albeit one that's getting older and you know has some work to do at the MLB level and is blocked for two guys with upside, basically who are very green, and you're just basically hoping that they work out. Now, the Dodgers can afford to do this because they have such a strong developmental system. They can take a, uh, a ball of clay and mold it, right? So, in a way, it, they're banking on that. Give me a guy with some uh, some tools to work with. Give me a guy with some upside, and we'll, we'll mold him. And I think that's what's going on here, in addition to the roster crunch pressure. Now, I just want to sort of also give perspective. They could have moved somebody up from the 40. They could have traded a lower-level guy who's already in the 40. But they already kind of did that as well with Jorbert Divas like I said, with Hudson. And so they were getting to the point where, like, who, you know, who do, so I'm sure they put offers on for other guys. And I'm sure there's probably, like, yeah, this is probably the best deal we can make given the considerations and given the fact that Bush is blocked. So I think they probably had to swallow their pride a little bit and say, okay, this is probably the, under the circumstances, this is the best move we can make. So they, they pulled the trigger. I think the Cubs got the way um, bigger advantage, uh, not just on paper, more valuable deal, but, um, they think Bush is going to be a, a productive major league hitter, and so do a lot of people. So we'll see how it all nets out, but I, I still like it better for the Cubs. Yeah, it, it probably, you know, we've talked about this in the past with the uh, Luis Urias's and Franklin Barreto's of the world, where you can kind of learn a lot about a player by how their original organization uses them or chooses not to use them. And so I think in this case, we can learn a lot about the Dodgers' evaluation of Bush's defense, that they went forward with this trade, despite having Max Muncy penciled in as their starting third baseman, um, and not really a stellar option behind that. I mean, you can look at Chris Taylor playing some third base, maybe Miguel Rojas, depending on what Gavin Lux looks like at short. Um, but they defensively, third base is not a solid position for the Dodgers right now, and they still went forward with this trade. So that can kind of tell you something about what they think of, of Bush's ability to play third base or other defensive positions. Um, on the flip side, with the Cubs, he's a much cleaner fit. Um, Matt Mervis had a lot of helium this time last year, but was pretty disappointing in 2023. So he's still, you know, on the radar, but not not at top of the depth chart. And they, they were looking for a better option as they try and win the Central. Um, and so you look at their roster resource page for the Cubs. Uh, right now, Bush is penciled in as the first baseman. You can also see some DH time opening up. Um, right now, Christopher Morell is put in at DH there, but they also have Mike Talkman in center field and Nick Madrigal at third base in their starting lineup. It is not hard to picture Morell taking some time away from one or both of those two players and then 
the DH spot is freed up, and then Bush can can DH as well, and you get Patrick Wisdom into the lineup, probably a bit better of a glove at first base, so et cetera, et cetera. Um, just a much cleaner roster fit for the Cubs, and, and I think you're right, that because they have a cleaner roster fit and because the Dodgers have this 40-man crunch where, yeah, you look at the Dodgers 40-man, there really aren't any guys that are easy to part ways with. Like, they have such a set big league team and then you're looking into their farm basically and it's like okay they have a catcher hunter fiducia who's 26 i'm not really sure what the story is there uh, but it seems like he was just added to the rule five to uh or excuse me added to the 40 man to avoid the rule five so yeah depth catcher but they also have diego cartaya already so maybe they see something there and, and didn't want to part ways with him um, miguel vargas Fills a similar role to Bush, but perhaps better expectations of his defense, and, and maybe uh, uh, he and he is two years younger, so that he has that going for him. And then you know they're not going to cut bait on Andy Pajes. They've hung, hung on to him for a while. They clearly like him a lot. And then some interesting pitchers that they have. You know, Ricky Venasco they signed to a deal this off season. There's a little bit of hype there. Um, he's throwing really hard coming back from from an injury and so that's a name to watch as a guy who could pop up into their bullpen and so they don't have the typical like you said after moving Yorbit Vivas and Brian Hudson um, to the Brian Hudson to the Brewers um, they don't have that typical 40-man fodder that's like really easy to move so they had to start making some of the tough decisions and this just ended up uh, being the one that they went with yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a little surprising but I think it's gonna net out well you know it's one of these things where you look at it two years from now, like, oh, these guys are rising up. But, you know, hopefully for the best for both teams. But uh, I think we'll, more will sort of unfold over time. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, just very briefly, that Brian Hudson trade that we mentioned, it, uh, we had him at $1 million in surplus. He was traded to the Brewers in exchange for left-handed pitcher Justin Chambers, who we didn't yet have in the system, and a player to be named later or cashed, which has not yet been reported. Um so not not a whole lot else to go off of there, but um, as you mentioned, Hudson was in DFA limbo and was traded to, to clear a roster spot. Um, okay, so we are pretty over on time already, and we have barely talked about any free agents. So let me fly through a few of these that we aren't going to have as much to say on. You can stop me if you want to on any of these, John, but I think, uh, I think we're pretty much on the same page of, of what these are looking like. Um, Cubs, shines, Cubs sign Shota Imanaga. Wow, that was hard for me to say. Cubs sign Shota Imanaga to a four-year, $53 million guarantee. Um, there's a fifth-year club option. It's a, it's kind of a tricky contract where it, it can max out at $80 million. And um, it, it's, it's after the 2025 and 2026 seasons, the Cubs have to make the decision on that 2028 option to max it out at $80 million. And at either point, if they decide to decline that option, then Imanaga can opt out and become a free agent. And it, there were reports that he had higher offers from other teams and just liked the fit with the Cubs. Um, there's kind of there's some uncertainty around Imanaga, Imanaga more so than there was for obviously Yamamoto, um, where Imanaga, you know, by some respects looks like a fifth starter. You know, he doesn't have fastball velocity, but he does have insane movement and ride on it and spin rate. And so there, there's things to like there. There's high home run rates that might not translate well to Wrigley Field, but we'll see. 
he's he's certainly an interesting pitcher and, and certainly an upgrade for the Cubs who have had a good good last couple weeks. They've made some some solid upgrades as a team that was really quiet for a while. Um, do you have anything else to add on Imanaga? Sorry, no. I mean, as we know, we can't really model the foreign pitchers, uh, foreign players in general. So we knew there was a hot market for them, uh, for him. So uh, I don't. <laughs> I got nothing else. I'm, you know, I think the Cubs needed a pitcher, and we'll see how he adapts. You never quite know how they're going to adapt to uh, U.S. MLB. So I think that's a big question mark, which is why, you know, I think the 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 numbers were. I think there's more certainty, you know, um, with Yamamoto, obviously. Um, a little bit less so with this one um, for reasons that I'm not going to get into because I want our Patreon supporters. So I'm going to leave it there. Agreed. All right. Uh, if we continue to go down the line here, the Mets signed Sean Manaya to a two-year $28 million guarantee. Uh, he does have an opt-out after the 2024 season, though. Um, not a whole lot to make of that one. It seems like the the Mets are kind of stocking up on these arms that they can, you know, have a little bit of upside enough that if things break right, they can be trade candidates. Um, it seems like that's more so the mentality than of, of you know, acquiring a Sean Manaya and an Adrian Hauser and, and some others than it is um, actually trying to contend this year. It seems like they are taking that step back that they talked about last trade deadline when they traded Scherzer and Verlander and saying like, this might be a bit of a gap here for us, but they still have a quality roster and, and needed to fill out a rotation. And so Manaya is a solid addition there. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and I should mention that um, reports are he added a sweeper, I think in the second half of last year, that was very effective and it kind of changed his profile a little bit. So a little bit of upside that you didn't know was there with Sean Manaya because you kind of know what you're getting with Sean Manaya. Right. Um, and I've watched him pitch and really, you know, took a, took a very sort of close look at it. He hits his corner really well. It doesn't have a whole lot of velocity anymore, but he can he can really nail that sort of high outside corner that gets a lot of swing and miss. And if they don't swing, they'll still get the call. So good for him. He's always had that sort of sense of control, and now he's got a sweeper to kind of close the pool with as well. So um, he actually got um, a little bit less than the, what we thought he would. Let's see. Yeah, uh, we had him at uh, – so his AAV is 16 – we had him at uh, actually. Um, hang on, let me just. Uh, no, we had him at sixteen point one fair value AEV wise, and he got fourteen. So, um, so they got a little bit of value there. Yeah, uh, although the opt out does give him a little bit of leverage there, a little yep. bit of value. But yep. um, yeah, um, the one other point there is he did actually start throwing harder last season. He had an uptick. Um, part of that was a move to the bullpen, I'm sure. But um, that's a guy who. Had some extensive injuries with Oakland, pitched well through them, but was often throwing high 80s, low 90s. And with the Giants last year, he averaged 93.6. So between that and the sweeper, I think there is reason to be optimistic here for sure. All right, uh, sticking with the Mets, they also signed Harrison Bader to a one-year $10.5 million contract. Um, again, this is just a guy who's going to go out and, and play center field for them, play it well, who knows how well he'll hit. And he'll be a candidate to trade if they decide to do so at the deadline. Uh, I don't think I have a whole lot more here on Harrison Bader, do you? So from a value perspective, we had his AEV at 10.6. He got 10.5. So right there. Um, yeah. And um, I think the only other thing is what does this mean to Nimmo? Because uh, Nimmo was a center fielder and doing a decent job, it seemed. But obviously Bader is one of the top center fielders in the business. So I think he's going to take on that role. question is health. Um, but Nimmo apparently said he's fine moving to left. So... 
maybe it optimizes their their output a little bit more. Yeah. All right. Now we have some real small ones before we bounce back to a couple that we might want to spend a minute or two on. Um, the Rockies signed Dakota Hudson and Jacob Stallings. Uh, Hudson makes one and a half million. Stallings gets two million. I don't have anything else to add there. <laughs> the Rangers sign Andrew Niz- uh, Kisner. I, I'm never going to know how to pronounce his name. Um, interesting. He actually is making more on this deal. It's a 1.825 million deal. Uh, more than he was expected to earn in, uh, actually, no, I take that back. He was projected to earn $2 million in arbitration with the Cardinals, and they non-tendered him prior to that deadline. And so instead, he'll make a little bit less as a Rangers backup catcher. Um, the Yankees signed Luke Weaver to a big league deal, $2 million, uh, with a club option and some incentives. Uh, good for Luke Weaver, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was okay for the Yankees down the stretch, and so why not run it back and see if they have something there? And the Reds signed Brent Suter, left-handed reliever, to a one-year $3 million deal. Has a club option for 2025. He's just a guy who's always going to find a role in a bullpen. He's a lefty, can get lefties out, can also get some righties out. Um, He can pitch multiple innings. He doesn't throw hard, but gets the job done. Has kind of a funky delivery. So he's he's always going to find a home somewhere across the league. And the the Reds continue to need pitching. So it's a a clean fit there for him. I like what the Reds are doing. I think they're filling holes. They're building on top of their young core. I like it. Yeah, me too. It's been nice to see them spend money. It's still a little bit weird that they signed Jaimer Candelario for some reason and and still have a boatload of infielders, but maybe <laughs> maybe we'll see something move there in, in the coming weeks. Um, let's circle back, though. Let's start with Teoscar Hernandez to the Dodgers. Um, we did mention this earlier as, as kind of... Uh, leading to that Michael Bush trade. Um, he gets a one-year $23.5 million deal. Only $15 million of it is actually paid up front. The rest is deferred from 2030 to 2039. Uh, a bit odd. I don't think we typically see deferrals like this on one-year deals. Um, but it's it's just the Dodgers continuing to play tax games and uh, and and keep their luxury tax number where they want it to be. And if the player agrees to it, then, you know, there's no real harm involved. So um, as far as the model goes, though, uh, so he receives one year, $23.5 million. When you do the present value math on those deferrals, it comes out around $20 million in present day value, um, maybe a little bit under that. And the model projected one year of Hernandez at 13.2. So there's a gap there. And there was a similar gap for Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and his deal with the D-backs. So it's something that I'm at least keeping an eye on here of those are two bat-first corner outfielders who aren't, you know, they're not 150 WRC plus type bats, and they kind of had up and down years the last few seasons. You know, they're good hitters, but not great ones. Um, All settles in around like two-ish wins above replacement. Um, according to fan graphs and both of them got more than we expected so i wonder if there's something there i wonder mm-hmm. if it's just some weird market factors at play i wonder if it corrects itself for guys like jorge soler and jd martinez and maybe they get less than we expect and it was just a matter of um, the market evening out for you know teams were willing to overpay for the guys that they specifically liked but at the end of the day it, it's just adhering to the market for these bat first true talent DH corner outfield kind of guys. Um, but I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts there? 
So we know from experience, we noticed this trend a couple of years ago, that you can't just take war, you know, cap war at face value because it's a combination of assumptions going, embedded into it, offense and defense. We noticed a, year, a couple of years ago that teams were paying more for offense than for defense, by the way. You mentioned Colton Wong and guys like that, uh, where they might have accumulated war, but it was mostly defensive, but the market didn't care. They wanted offense. <clears throat> and we're still seeing that. So we adjusted for it a couple of years ago. We skewed it a little bit more. In effect saying, yeah, there's F war, but it doesn't really correlate that well on face value to the market. Market is valuing offense more, so we have to skew our numbers a little bit. So even after that, he still got more. Both of those guys got more. And so it, it, it makes you wonder if we have to skew it even a bit more. We'll, we'll keep an eye on the other guys that you mentioned, uh, but that's certainly um, on our radar. Um, now, looking at Tay Oscar in particular, he's a, you know, you think, okay, well, he's he's a right-handed bat that hits lefty, so he's a short side platoon guy. But he actually did okay against righties. I think he was sort of an average hitter against, right, uh, against righties, but definitely above average plus against lefties. So I think it's a balanced thing for the Dodgers. And the Dodgers, of course, can overpay. So you got to factor that in as well. Uh, so I don't know if it's another trend of the whole market overpaying for these types of guys, but, you know, maybe we can adjust a little bit more. Um, but that's all I got. I'll, I'll, we'll also say a good job by his agent to get him kind of an overpriced deal there that he's done. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, the last one that we should get to here, the Yankees signing Marcus Stroman. <laughs> there's there's a lot to unpack here, and I'm interested to hear your perspective on it as uh, someone a little bit more in tune with New York media than I am. Mm -hmm. uh, but he gets a, a two-year, $37 million contract. There's a vesting option for 2026. It's It becomes an $18 million player option if he throws 140 innings in 2025, which seems achievable. Um, and so if he is to hit that 140 inning mark, he gets that player option, and that's a little bit more leverage for him. Uh, however, we have this as a bit of an underpay. We have two years at Marcus Stroman at $45.2 million in field value compared to the 37 that he's getting here. Um there's maybe a handful of different on and off field things that could contribute to that. But I, like I said, I'm interested to hear what you think on this from a baseball perspective and then from a Yankees East coast, et cetera, perspective. So from a baseball perspective, it's slightly under market value because we talked about the you know, demand for starting pitching being better, being higher than the supply. So the Yankees seem to have gotten a bargain in this deal, right? Um, couple of things to consider stroman grew up in long island um so he is a you know he's a kind of a local guy he's already played for the mess already so he understands what it's like to pitch in new york and there's something apparently he wants to pitch in new york in the yankee stadium so there's that sort of home aspect um i mean i don't want to get too much into yankees twitter and how the fans sort of perceive it um you know he had said some things about cashman and there's a whole bunch of off field stuff that made it seem like yeah, he's not a fit for the Yankees, and he didn't endear himself to the fans. On the other hand, when the deal was announced, it was, the sense I got from Yankee Twitter was like, eh, all right, <laughs> let's give him a shot. He's, you know, the number three starter. Um, and they like the fact that he's a kind of a local guy. So it's funny how sentiments can change quite a bit quickly. Um, so, you know, and the other thing uh, fans pointed out was that Cashman doesn't seem – bothered by guys with off-field issues. You know, he had Domingo Herman for a while. He just traded for Verdugo. He had some off-field issues. And now he's sending Stroman. And just, you can go back in history. These, it a role to Chapman. Yeah, yeah. Like, Cashman doesn't seem to care about that. And maybe it's because the 
Well, I have a friend who said, oh, Aaron Judge lives at the clubhouse. Yeah, he'll keep him in line. I'm like, oh, you're right. <laughs> so maybe that's it. You know, uh, Cashman trusts Judge to be the captain and to like keep everybody cool. So maybe that's fine. Yeah, th- there was some direct conflict between Stroman and Cashman back when Stroman was with the Mets. I think it was something like, uh, like he said, uh, Cashman said he'd only be going for like difference makers at the trade deadline, and he didn't count Stroman in that category uh, right and then Stroman yeah yeah and, and Stroman fired back and was like I'm going to be better than everyone in your rotation other than Garrett Cole um and, and so like if it's just that I think there's a way to interpret that as like as, as it's the kind of competitiveness it's like the Josh Donaldson effect where okay we're there's Bay another guy with it's, this it's yeah. <laughs> yep it's the Josh Donaldson slash Draymond Green effect where you love the guy if he's on your team and you absolutely hate him if he's not. And, and so I wonder if there's a little bit of that kind of thing going on. Um, yeah, but then the there's bottom. also yeah. some, yeah, th- there's, there's some other off field considerations that aren't quite as good. He has some not great tweets in his past um, that seemingly get swept under the rug a lot of the time. Um, but I digress. I, I wonder if that maybe limited his market a little bit. If people, you know, he, he is an interesting personality that might not fit into every clubhouse. So I wonder if that factors into the perceived underpay here. You know, maybe teams were more willing to go for a Kyle Gibson than a Marcus Stroman if it fit their clubhouse better. And well, and also circling back just to the baseball side, he's had some injury issues and some concerns before. He's had some durability issues. So, yeah, I wonder if that's a factor as well that we may not be seeing on the surface. Yeah, that that certainly could be. His 2024, or excuse me, his 2023 season was a bit odd. He was really good out the gate, got hurt, and then struggled down the stretch. And so the final product is like a three-win season. And and you can look at it and say, oh, if he just stays healthy a full season, it's even better. Um, but when you look at kind of the shape of it, there's, there's reason for concern there, I think. Yeah, yeah. and I'm going to make a small comp here to Shane Bieber. I know they're completely different pitchers and everything else, but Shane Bieber has one year left of control, serious injury issue, serious red flags last year. Um, and he's going to be making, oh, by the way, arbitration, he got more than we thought, a little over $13 million. So uh, with Stroman getting $18-ish million, 18.5, uh, we have um, Bieber's surplus of 5.6. In other words, equivalent about $18, 19000000 million in market value. Um, and they've had similar stories and similar sort of issues. So I feel good about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, all right. Um, I think prior to recording, I was like, oh, we don't have all that much to talk about. So maybe it won't be two hours like last time. And now it certainly is almost two hours. Uh, You can thank the Cardinals for that. Um, But is there anything else that we've somehow (laughs) somehow missed in in our our two hours of talking? No, I just think uh, let's get this. Let's get this hot stove burning, people. It's been a little too cold. So a little bit here and there, but then it, you know he's like, oh, things are happening, and then it kind of dies off again. So uh, we're getting close to spring training. I don't want to say super close, but we're a month away, basically, from pitchers and catchers reporting. So that's gotta happen soon. Hey, John, did you remember that Josh Hader is a free agent? Oh yeah, because I sure didn't. <laughs> yes, I've been seeing some some his names popping up a little bit here and there in speculation, but nothing nothing material. Yeah, well. Hopefully we get at least one of those top handful of guys to talk about um, between the next two weeks and, and maybe, as Jim Bowden predicted, the the media negotiations get the ball rolling here and, and get the 
get the off season back to life so that we can have full teams to talk about heading into spring training in about a month, month and a half. Well, cool. I think that's all for me. Anything else? Nope. All right. That'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.